Hey, Bays. This is Alicia. This is Katie. And this is Paige. And we are Crime, crime Bay. We are a true crime podcast bringing you at least one episode a week. And we are going to cover a wide range of topics varying from the more known, well-known stories, your serial killers, to the more lesser known stories such as supernatural myths, legends, cryptids. We know you guys want to know about Mothman. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? And we're going to be fun and humorous at the appropriate times. And sometimes inappropriate. And sometimes inappropriate. (laughs) We got to make ourselves laugh to keep from crying, you know? Sure, you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Crime Bay Podcast. Thank you so much. We look forward to uh, making you a bay. Thank you, bay. Hasta la pasta. guys, welcome back to episode 31 of True Crime B&B. I'm Bailey. And I'm Beth. And guess who's the bad guy this week? Not me for once. It is me. It is me. (laughs) And this is a little bit of an unusual one for me. Okay. And the reason it's unusual is because my sister told me a story about a local murder in our hometown back when I was in fifth grade. Now, keep in mind that she was in eighth grade, so her news media consumption was probably at least as low as mine, Mm -hmm. and she was relying on the adolescent rumors that she was hearing at Sunnyside Junior High, which is now known as Sunnyside Middle School. Okay. Her version of the story was that a woman had been murdered and stuffed into a dead tree at a park that we had been to many, many times. Turns out that the story she gave me wasn't 100% correct, but it's pretty close to the truth. Well, a lot of rumors are. (laughs) Yeah, and it stuck with me for so many decades now that I decided, now that I have a true crime podcast, it was time to get down to the bottom of it. Interesting. At least as much as possible from the available information. Mm -hmm. I also want to point out, around the world, most people pronounce the name of this city as Lafayette. But in Indiana, we call it Lafayette. Mm -hmm. My grandfather even butchered it worse, and he said Lafayette. So I'm not mispronouncing it when I say Lafayette. It's just Indiana speak. Well, you're from there. You get to say what it's <laughs> pronounced as. Hell, I'm from everywhere. True. <laughs> and so I bring you today mm-hmm. the 1977 murder at Murdoch Park in Lafayette, Indiana. Okay, I'm excited. For this episode, I purchased access to the archives of the Lafayette Journal and Courier, which is the local newspaper where my maternal grandma happened to be the telephone switchboard operator for a couple of decades. I didn't know we had that in our family. Yes. Interesting. Okay. But I digress. The Lafayette Journal and Courier was the primary source of information available for this case, as well as some information from findagrave.com. Mm-hmm. Ruth Mayhelm was born May 19, 1931, in Jasper County, Indiana. Her parents were Clarence Helm and Josephine Jacobs Helm. Ruth was raised in Remington, Indiana, and she had two sisters, Clara Irene and Wilma Joan, and a brother, Paul Edgar. Her mother died when she was young, but her father remarried a woman named Ruth, who helped Clarence hold the farm together while the kids grew up. And this is jumping ahead, but Ruth's father later died in a car accident in 1974. Oh, okay. And I'm only bringing it up now because it doesn't make sense later to bring it up again, so... Yeah. Later, after school, she moved to Rensselaer, Indiana for a few years and finally had moved to Lafayette, Indiana in 1954 when she was 23. She briefly worked as a maid at St. Elizabeth Hospital, known locally as St. E, until she married Joe Blankenship, who was 20 years her senior, in 1954. 
Mm-hmm. And another family aside, my other grandma worked at St. E in the cafeteria for years and years and years. Lafayette's a pretty small town, too. At that time, it was about 45,000 people. Yeah, so it's not that shocking. It's not, but it's just everywhere I saw on here, I know, there that's was the, some connection to my family or my past. That's the fun thing about stories about where you grew up and stuff, is yeah. that... It's just like, oh my gosh, that could have been anybody. Yeah, it's like you in the Mm -hmm. Sam Shepard case. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, Ruth and Joe Blankenship lived in Fowler at a tenant farm, just up the highway from Lafayette, and they had one son together. Unfortunately, in 1957, Joe was packing silage, which is like greens that are stored for animal feed. Oh, okay. In a trench silo, and his tractor overturned, pinning him beneath it, mm. immediately breaking his neck and killing him instantly at the age of 48. Oh, farm accidents are no joke. Oh, you're not kidding. Farming is dangerous work. Mm. So after the death of Joe, Ruth found out the hard way that the options for young widowed mothers without an inheritance in 1950s Indiana were, to say the least, pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Ruth took her three-year-old son and went back to Lafayette. The following year, 1958, She married Walter Murray, who was 16 years her senior. She had two more sons and a daughter with Walter, and they lived on New York Street in Lafayette at the end. Okay. Clarence, Ruth's son with Joe, lived in Frankfurt, and apparently he was with other relatives of Joe, but I couldn't find Mm -hmm. by whom he was raised. In 1967, Ruth and Walter had another son, Floyd, who died in the hospital at a month and a half old. This poor woman. Yeah, she's had a lot of bad things happen in her life. Walter worked at the Lafayette Street Department. Ruth and Walter raised their children together over the next 19 years, and to be involved in the community, Ruth joined the Moose Lodge Auxiliary, which is a fraternal and social organization, and it reaches out to people who are in need. So they do things to help people with whatever. In 1967, Clarence, her son from her first marriage, was arrested for driving without a license and for failure to do his duty at a property damage accident. But he was 20, and that was the times. You know, most of his generation was dying in Vietnam, so the ones that were still at home in the U.S. weren't especially cognizant of society's rules. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of... A free-for-all. Yeah. That's just background on Ruth's family and Ruth's life up until 1977. The details on what happened to Ruth are a little bit sketchy. We really don't know what Ruth was doing out very, very late on a Friday night while the rest of her family was at home. That's not a judgment. We just don't know what she was doing. We don't have any comment from her husband as to where she was going or where he thought she was. Mm -hmm. He might have known exactly where she was going, but later you'll find out why none of that information ever came to light publicly. Okay. Ruth's murder had taken place around 1.30 a.m. on Saturday, April 16, 1977. Ruth's body was found by children playing in Murdoch Park the next day. She had been covered with 6-inch to 7-inch diameter tree branches. She was naked from the waist down. She had been brutally sexually assaulted. And Ruth had died from being viciously bludgeoned in the face and head. Her body was identified at the Tippecanoe County Morgue by her husband, Walter, on Saturday. The Tippecanoe County coroner called the murder, quote, a bizarre sex attack. Once the police knew her identity, they began canvassing the area around Murdoch Park to find out who, if anybody, had been seen with her before her death. Because just because she was murdered doesn't mean anyone was seen with her. Mm -hmm. 
They received tips that Ruth had been seen with a man named Michael Ray Miller the night before she died, but nobody seemed to be sure what they were doing together. So the sad fact is we don't know how she ended up on April 16, 1977 with Michael Ray Miller in Murdoch Park. The Murray family lived 1.2 miles from Murdoch Park. This park wasn't a nighttime hangout, except for some teenagers to drink and smoke cannabis. Mm-hmm. It wasn't some place people would wander in and just run into one another in the middle of the night. It's a 30-something acre woods butting up to Murdoch Elementary School. So why was Ruth there? Had she gone for a walk in the night? Their kids would have gone to Murdoch Elementary. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was walking there because it felt safe to her to be near her kids' school. In 1977, Indiana, we didn't all assume that someone would murder us if we went outside after dark. Mm -hmm. Had she been coming out of a tavern, which would have only been blocks from her home, and then maybe was grabbed and compelled to go to the park? Was it Miller's plan to just find someone coming out of a bar or walking home from a friend's or getting out of her car or just strolling in the crisp night air so that he could force himself on someone? Well, has she ever even interacted with this this man before? We don't have any way of knowing that, but I don't believe so. There's no evidence given, but again, there's no evidence given, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Michael Ray Miller was 31. He had been married at 19 and had a son, had later divorced, and had been seeing a longtime girlfriend. He was a sometimes construction worker employed by the Lafayette Street Department, the same as Walter Murray. Although there's no known evidence that the two men actually knew one another. He had been arrested and convicted quite a few times in the 1960s for criminal trespass and breaking into taverns. He also broke into some garages and stole some car keys. So he had quite a checkered past. But I didn't find any previous physical assaults. Michael Ray Miller lived on Elizabeth Street, which was only half a mile from Murdoch Park, but in the opposite direction from Ruth's home. And by 2 a.m. on April the 16th, he had arrived back at Elizabeth Street, which was his father's house, and was let in. The next day, Michael Ray Miller was at the Payless Grocery Store. Incidentally, that's the same store where we used to get our groceries when I was little. There's a lot of weird little asides in this story, so I'm sorry for the disruptions, but (laughs) I feel the need to say them. It's creepy. It is creepy. So anyway, the next day, he was at the Payless Grocery Store, and he was there with his sister-in-law who told him that the police were looking for him. He immediately told Martha Jean Miller, who was his sister-in-law, oh, I think I know what they're looking for. I killed abroad last night. He said that he killed her because it was the first time he had, and I'm using big air quotes, gone out on Mary, his girlfriend. Okay. Miller told Martha, the funny thing about it, I don't even feel bad about it. I laughed at her, beat her up some more, told her to die, and she finally did, but it took her a while. He had intended to go back to Murdoch Park late on Saturday to bury Ruth's body, but her remains had already been discovered, so he didn't have the chance. So he had raped this poor woman, beaten her, possibly with six-inch diameter logs that he had used to obscure her remains at the park, and to him, the worst thing about what he had done was that he had cheated on his girlfriend. He thought the murder part was just laughable. The fact of him... It doesn't sound like he cheated. It just sounds like he raped somebody, not... But to him, the only thing that was wrong with what he did was having sex with a woman, aside from his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was a forcible rape... Didn't even occur that that's a bad thing to him. Yeah, it's like, well, I had the right to do that. Mm. So the fact of him taking away a vibrant and socially involved woman and the mother of four children just wasn't important to him. Martha, the sister-in-law, told Michael Ray he needed to go turn himself into police, but he didn't want to do that. 
He decided that he was going to go visit his sister in Danville, Illinois, and then afterwards he said he would go on the run to Mexico or New Mexico later. And I have to wonder if he even knew that New Mexico is a U.S. state. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) He probably thought he was going out of the country. I'm in Mexico now. Martha, the sister-in-law, later that night went to police and told them that he had confessed the murder to her, and his brother Ronald also said that Michael had confessed to him at his house. So this guy wasn't even trying to cover up that he did this. Yeah, if you accidentally tell one person because you're shocked, that's one thing. But the fact that you're just going around town like, oh yeah, I did it, clearly you don't give a shit. Yeah, well he thought he was going to escape to Mexico. Michael Ray had escaped to Danville, Illinois after the murder. And he and his sister and brother-in-law, Betty and Arthur Lippin, were all sound asleep when the police arrived at the house. They surrounded the house and summoned Arthur Lippin, who let them in. At gunpoint, the police woke up Michael Ray and arrested him. He was charged on April 17, 1977 with Ruth Murray's murder after being brought back without objection to the extradition. He appeared in court on April 19, and he was appointed a public defender. Initial charges were filed in Lafayette, but later refiled in the Tippecanoe County Court, and he was held without bond since he was clearly a flight risk. Mm Mm-hmm. On May the 10th, 1977, Michael Ray Miller was indicted on charges of first-degree murder, and in his plea hearing, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, that sounds like bullshit to me. His jury trial was set for July the 19th. While in jail, he got along well with all the other inmates. His father visited him frequently, and he had started to, another big air quotes, get religion. So the sheriff and the jailers thought he seemed just like every other prisoner. But Michael Ray Miller never was to be tried for his crime. At 1.50 a.m. on June 21, 1977, his fellow inmates in the Tippecanoe County Jail said Miller stopped talking and then they heard his cell door rattle. Miller was found by jail staff at about 2 a.m. hanging by his t-shirt from the top crossbar of his cell door with his feet 12 inches off the floor. On his body were found a suicide note to his family as well as written out Bible passages, but no confession and no reason for why he killed Ruth Murray. Mm -hmm. He died before ever undergoing his psych evaluations to determine whether he was mentally fit to stand trial, but some of his writings indicated that he was really afraid of the outcome of the trial and the fact that he was likely to spend the rest of his life in prison. Okay, so then you're sane. (laughs) Exactly. That's enough of this scumbag. Mm -hmm. On findagrave.com, Ruth's husband, Walter Murray's memorial, states that he had had health problems for over three years prior to his death in January 1981. So from that timing, it sounds as if the shock of what happened to Ruth, along with the lingering and maddening questions that only Miller could have answered, took their toll on Walter. Maybe a trial would have answered some of those questions, but Walter never had the satisfaction of seeing Miller answer anything. Mm Mm-hmm. Both Ruth and Walter are buried in the same cemetery as most of my first grandparents, which is the Tippecanoe Memory Gardens. But this ugly and shocking crime had shaken up Lafayette. And later that year, a police officer was attacked and beaten in Murdoch Park. Several park cleanup initiatives were started by scout troops and a crime prevention program began, led by the Lafayette Police Department. They pointed out that Lafayette, at that time around 45,000 residents, had the same crime problem. Mm -hmm. as Chicago or Indianapolis or Washington, D.C., but just on a smaller scale. Damn. 
but the suggestions for safety that they offered were all based on how to prevent burglaries or how to discourage thefts of your property and make your stuff less attractive to thieves, not how to improve your personal safety when it came to people who just want to hurt somebody. And I think that's partly because it was just a more innocent time. But they did offer one helpful suggestion, that the police would rather come out for a mistaken call than to investigate a crime that had happened. So basically their advice was, if you're scared about something, call us. Mm -hmm. So this case has been a real enigma for me for four and a half decades because I literally remember it happening. Mm -hmm. I clearly never knew what really happened and the information I have wasn't completely factual. I never knew who Ruth Helm Murray was. I never knew the asshole who had murdered her had opted out before being held accountable. Mm -hmm. And I certainly never knew that her husband had suffered so much that his health problems killed him three and a half years later. I wish that I could have found a photo of Ruth. I wish there was more information available in general about her and what she went through and why he did what he did. But even without all the answers, I still feel kind of a sense of relief in knowing now, 45 years later, Ruth's name. Mm -hmm. You know, that she did good things to help people, that she had a family who loved her. Mm -hmm. And I hope that by sharing what I can find of her story, that she will be remembered. Because she didn't deserve what happened to her. Mm -hmm. And I literally never knew her name. That's 45 years I remembered her murder and I never knew her name. Insane. Is Lafayette, sorry, this is all I remember about visiting Indiana as a kid. Is that the house where you lived on the corner? Yes. So how far away is Murdoch Park from your house? We were probably two to three miles away okay. from there when that happened. It's crazy. And those kids that found her body were probably your age at that time. Like, they may have close. been. Yeah. yeah but cool. I went to a different elementary school. I did not go to Murdoch Elementary. Yeah, but it's just weird to think that you might have known those people later on in life, you know? that. Yeah, if we hadn't moved away after that. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's what you get for being a migrant child moving around. That's true. There are probably so many stories where you were in town at the time, and they're all in different states. I know. It probably looks like I'm a serial killer. Everywhere I go, there's people. Since the age of five. (laughs) That might be our first Indiana story. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. So, what do you have today? My victim today is Audrey Mabry. She was originally born and raised in Texas until she met a man online by the name of Chris Haney. Chris Haney was about 17 years older than her. Okay. He had previously been an NYPD police detective, but had retired from that and was now living in Florida, where he was now working as a TSA agent at a federal airport. So she met Chris online in 2003 when she was 20 and he was 37, and they ended up hitting it off. She felt super safe with him. She had been in abusive relationships in the past and was very hesitant going forward with any men. And he convinced her, I'm not like that. My job was protecting people. I'm not going to be like that to you. And he proved it to her for the most part. However, after she moved in with him, got married, they started having kids together, he started slowly becoming emotionally abusive, although she admits he never once hit her. It never got physical, she just would walk away when things got rough, they calmed down, everything was fine. Eventually, they moved into a house together in Tampa, Florida with their two sons. One was a baby in 2009, one was four years old. At the time, he was constantly jealous, constantly picking fights with her about her previous boyfriend who wasn't even around. This previous boyfriend he's talking about now lives in Kansas, so several states away. They're in Tampa, Florida. Right. And he kept telling her, oh, our first son isn't even mine, I bet. I bet it's that asshole who impregnated you. You were cheating on me this whole time with that guy. And she's like, you're insane. We'll get a DNA test if that's what What you're going to be insecure about. What 
What is wrong with people? So yeah, he just kept poking the bear and poking the bear. And finally she had enough and said, I've played this game before. I don't want to be in this relationship. And so she said that she was going to file for divorce. And finally, in mid-October of 2009, she packed her bags, moved to a separate apartment, and they just agreed to co-parent and switch off every week. Okay. November 17th, 2009, they'd been separated for about a month. And then Audrey, who is now 26 years old, walked over from her apartment to their former house where her husband and her kids were still living. And her plan was to stop in, go to the restroom, and then she was going to walk to the school and walk the kids home because he was supposed to be at work. Yeah. So she walked into the house, and immediately after she entered the front door, she was met by her ex-husband, Chris, except he was butt-ass naked and holding a butcher knife. So she was very confused and turned around, started to try to leave, but he grabbed her and overpowered her and forced her into the garage, which was right next to the entrance of the house. Nothing premeditated about this. Yeah, he has her into the garage now, and she realizes he has basically like a murder situation set up out in the garage. He's put a blanket down on the ground, so if she bleeds everywhere, he can just wrap it up real quick. And he has a bunch of weapons laid out on that blanket. And he pushes her down on the ground, ties up her hands so she can't get away from him, and immediately tries to sexually assault her. But he was apparently unsuccessful at that because she fought him so hard. Yeah, hopefully she need him in the groin. At this point, he decided to pick up the hammer that he had ready. Oh, Jesus Christ. And beat her four times in the head, twice on each side of her head. <sighs> and then, as she's laying there, still conscious, but shocked, obviously... He decided to take a gas can they had in the garage and completely doused her in it. And then he took a candle that he had pre-lit, knocked it off the shelf onto her. And then as she went up in flames, he went into the house and then soon after went down the street, started running away from it. Audrey is still completely conscious this entire ordeal. And she not only is on fire, beat four times in the head with a hammer, but she still had the mindset to stand up, walk up the few steps, hit the garage door button, and run out onto the street. That's just unbelievable. I can't imagine this situation, but she walks out into the driveway trying to get help from anybody nearby. And as she walks down there, one of her neighbors, who was walking her child home from school that day, just like Audrey was supposed to be at this point, passed by with her son, and Audrey was just laying there on fire in the driveway. And so that mom jumped in and called 911, put the fire out of Audrey, And then the 911 operator had told her to take her into the shower and just keep it on her until the paramedics could arrive. Oh my god. I can't even imagine. That poor child. The child, but poor Audrey. I know. And I know that when when your skin burns, that the nerves actually burn away. And I think that the pain... It's just a few seconds of sheer But the future of trying to replace all that Mm. destroyed skin is so... So agonizingly painful. It's one of those things that you're going to be dealing with the next 50 years. You know, it's just never ends. it's so painful. While this was going on and the neighbor was saving Audrey's life, another neighbor happened upon Chris Haney, who apparently had put on clothes at this point. I was going to say, is he still (laughs) I'm assuming nobody ever mentioned that again. But he's running down the street to get away from the scene, and another neighbor stopped him thinking he needed help and said, hey, what's going on? You're running awful fast. You look panicked. All he said to this neighbor was, did I kill the bitch? And then just ran off again. So they got Audrey to help, and they finally figured out Chris had been the one to do this. And he was arrested that same day. He wasn't far from the house. Well, what did he think was going to happen? It's in his house. She's on fire in your house. Yeah, she doesn't even live there anymore. 
What do you, <laughs> who's going to think that this was some random act? Yeah. Oh, my God. What a moron. Audrey, obviously, it was a very life-or-death situation right now. She had to be life-flighted to the Tampa hospital, and she was put into a medically-induced coma for the next six weeks. Her injuries were so awful. 80% of her body was second- and third-degree burns. Oh, my God. (sighs) I'm so happy that they were merciful and kept her in a coma so that her body could heal a little bit before she had to wake up and... And even after waking up, after the six weeks were over, they brought her back too. And she told them, I don't want to see my sons. One is a baby, so he'll be okay. But the other one's four. That's too traumatizing to bring them into this, especially when she's still all bandaged, the skin grafts and stuff are healing. So for the next three months, she put off seeing her sons until she felt like, okay, I've accepted this enough where I can deal with their trauma. Like I said, Chris Haney was arrested at the time in 2009, but his trial did not start until 2012, and I think a lot of that was because she wanted to be able to go and testify for herself. So they waited until she was healed up enough and had some physical therapy and all that to go to it. He tried to argue during this that she had actually attacked him and tied him down with some random masked intruder that he had never seen before, and they were the ones attacking him, and that it was all completely self-defense. Yeah. But no one bought it. Because look at how she's doing right now versus you. And you're telling me you beat her four times in the head and had to set her on fire in order to defend yourself, you ex-police officer. Exactly. Yeah, so no one bought it and he was found guilty. And he received the maximum sentence for first-degree attempted murder, which is life in prison without parole. Good, because she's going to be dealing with it for the rest of her life. Mm Mm-hmm. And on top of that, he also received 60 additional years for arson and aggravated battery. Good. At the end of his sentencing, his defense attorneys asked the judge for a reduced sentence because he had worked 20 years of his life with the NYPD protecting our people. He should get a little bit of time and leniency off. The prosecutor to that said, yeah, so better than anyone else, this defendant should know right from wrong. Yeah, is your point. I would like to think so. He didn't get anything out of that. Audrey, after all of this went down, went on to work with other domestic violence survivors who share their stories, and that's when she met Melissa Dome, because she was obviously healing from her attack. Was her attack near the same time? Hers was in 2009, and Melissa's was in, I believe, 2012. Okay. So she didn't meet Melissa, and but she didn't start giving speeches until long into her healing process. But Audrey had a much longer healing process than Melissa Mm -hmm. would have had because she had completely different types of injuries. But then Audrey decided to start her own nonprofit, which is called Break the Silence. And she has a website for that. It's just breakthesilencedv.org. And she works to help other victims of domestic violence. She also was put in contact with a plastic surgeon that lived near her in Tampa through another nonprofit I really wanted to give a shout out to because I never knew this existed, especially in the United States. It's called Face Forward, and it is a pro bono group of plastic surgeons. Wow, what good work. Yeah. People that otherwise wouldn't be able to try and get. Yeah, these surgeries are not cheap for skin grafts and stuff like that, especially if you have no skin of your own to graft. That's just... But yeah, so it's a group of plastic surgeons across the United States who do pro bono surgeries to victims of violent and disfiguring crime. Wow. Yeah. That's very much like the Sahas Foundation for that's, the Acid Survivors. That's exactly what I thought of when I read this. It's just nice to know that that's out there. So if you want to look into them, they are face forward. 
Oh, wow. That's fantastic that they exist. Yeah. Wow. She's had over, I think, 80 surgeries by 2017. Oh, my God. That's just inconceivable. And she hasn't paid a dime for a single one. Yeah, but the pain of it. I know. I mean, granted, she would be financially destitute if oh, yeah. she had to be responsible financially for that. I mean, she's like a 17-year-old now. Can you imagine? He wouldn't be able to go to college after all these just life-saving surgeries she needed. And yeah. it really made a big difference I... for her. Eight years after her attack in 2017, Audrey was speaking at the National Speakers Association and met another public speaker of the group named David Prosper. In 2018, after they had been talking and texting for quite a while, the two married, and he adopted both of her boys. That's so sweet. And they now live in Colorado Springs, Colorado together. Wow. I did want to say Audrey's foundation, BreakTheSilenceDV.org, they have things all over America. So if you are looking for resources for you or anybody that you know, and it is very domestic violence friendly where they have a button at the very top that says quick get out of this and it takes you just to regular Google right. immediately. Yeah. It's very discreet. Right. And stuff so like that, that if someone walks in while you're looking at the resource page. Yeah, it's kinda of like those apps that look like a pizza. You're ordering a pizza if you want to call nine one or something like that. I believe she has her books and stuff that you can purchase or download depending on the book. Break the silence dviasandvictor.org just a lot of really good people in this story and I just oh one last thing Audrey married David Prosper in 2018 right yeah her middle name is May her name is literally Audrey May Prosper amazing isn't that so fitting for her that's amazing Audrey Uh, will prosper Audrey did she did (laughs) okay Audrey is prospering I'm so happy to hear that she's found happiness Mm -hmm. I love it that's so uplifting at the end I mean it's really a horrible experience that she went through Mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. that whole story just had me just curling up into a ball over here while you were telling it but that was very powerful I wanted to bring up something because I told you that I subscribed to the Lafayette Journal and Courier archives Mm mm-hmm I wanted to go back and look at the happy ads that my grandma and grandpa used to put in the newspaper for me every year. Do you know what a happy ad is? No clue. It was like a little classified ad, and they had just a whole column for it. People would take out little ads for people's special events. Mm -hmm. And every single year, my mom's mom would put a happy ad in the newspaper on my birthday. And I went through, and I found all of them. All of them. Every single year. And one of them even said, because it was three days after my birthday, and the ad actually said, I waited until you were home because we had traveled to Virginia that year (laughs) over my birthday, and she didn't want to put it on my birthday because I would have missed it. And it just made my it just made my heart Is happy. Is this Helen? Yeah. Oh, I knew it would be Helen because yeah, she's grandma. always everybody's always told me she was so sweet. She was well. Both of my grandmas were just angels, mm-hmm. but it just made me happy. That is sweet. All right, so that's all I have this week. If you want to find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can find us at True Crime B and B. And if you want to send us an email, which we would really love and encourage. Anything you want to say, send it to truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Follow the Screamy Bear, (laughs) also known as Puss, on Instagram at truecrimebnbpuss. Until next week, episode 32? Yes, episode 31 is out. Episode 32 is on deck. All right, well, we'll see you next week. All right, bye, guys. Bye. she was doing. Damn it, kitty. I hope that by sharing what I can find of her... Puss!
Stop tearing the carpet up. Don't casually lay down and look away from us like you saw nothing. <sighs> the happy ads. God, you're annoying today. <laughs> he shut down the meth lab, popped straight out of the womb, and immediately arrested them. 